After a substantial lull, the war in Ukraine is moving into its newest phase, as Russian troops are massing for a substantial offensive in the hotly contested Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. This offensive, this military struggle that will play itself out over the next weeks and months, will essentially be the defining pivot point of the war. If Vladimir Putin is able to seize the Donbass, then he could still claim victory, snatching something out of a war that has been not what he expected thus far. If he can't, then he will be in a situation where the war in Ukraine, no matter how it ends, will have been demonstrated to be an abject failure for him. And there will be knock-on consequences for Russia and for the world. Ukrainians are bracing for this conflict, asking for heavier and heavier aid from the West, and expecting a battle that could be reminiscent of World War II. We have now reached what seems like it will be the strategic pivot point of the war. I'm Dr. Nolte, and for Blind Politics, this is Eye on Ukraine. And welcome, podcast listeners, to our ongoing coverage of the war in Ukraine, the Russo-Ukrainian War. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And you can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte and on the Facebook and Instagram pages of the Robertson School of Government. It's been a while since we've done a straight-up Eye on Ukraine podcast, sort of updating you on what's been happening in the war. And that is because there's a a bit of a strategic pause that went on as Russia sort of repositioned troops. It became clear a couple weeks ago that they could not take Kiev, and so they've been repositioning and are now focused on a last push to liberate the Donbass region. I'm anticipating that we will see heavy fighting in this region of Ukraine between now and May 9th. May 9th is Soviet Victory Day. And Vladimir Putin is going to want to show a certain amount of success in his so-called denazification campaign by May 9th. So we should expect the heaviest period of fighting to occur between now and that date. And this will be probably some of the heaviest fighting that we've seen thus far in the war. Donbass is a region that's been contested between Russia and Ukraine in the past. It is the region that we saw some of the areas uh, see from Donetsk and Luhansk. It is the region that Mariupol is in, technically, is in uh, the, it's in one of these uh, sort of Donbass areas. It's sort of the, that eastern region of Ukraine, heavily Russian-speaking, but not necessarily pro-Putin. There were elements that were maybe a little bit more sympathetic to Putin. This seems to be an area that's, that's sort of industrial, has been described by some reports as a gritty region that is skeptical of outsiders. But I would say this is also an area where we've seen their greatest shift. Before 2014, there were folks in the Donbass who were particularly, I think, skeptical of Ukraine, who were cautious about Ukrainian nationalism, who saw themselves as maybe more more Russian-oriented. What has happened since then? And we've seen this throughout, really, the war in the Russian-speaking areas, is that the citizens of these areas have come to take Putin through a much more jaundiced eye and have begun to see themselves actually as Ukrainians. 
And I think part of this is because of the actions of Putin and his, um, what's the proper term, clients maybe, satellites, stooges, however you want to call them, the, the people that are leading his breakaway regions there in uh, Luhansk and Donetsk. The Donbass region has not prospered. It has not prospered under Russian management, under the management of the Russian Federation. And I think that has been reflected in some of the attitudes of people in the area who are now much more hostile than they would have been previously. So this is the area that Putin is trying to seize, that Putin wants to bring fully into the fold of the Russian Federation, at a minimum. You know, his maximalist war aims were spelled out very early on. He was hoping that he could annex all of Ukraine and maybe go even further than that. This was going to be his shining moment. But at a minimum, he wants all of the Donbass. And so now he is gearing up to prepare for that. Now, the Ukrainians, I think, are also preparing. They're shifting around forces. They're making requests of heavier aid from the West. And they're preparing for what they, they consider could be sort of set-piece battles. I don't think the Ukrainians are going to be just aiming for a status quo peace. I think that they are going to start out on the defensive. But there's a very real possibility of Ukrainian counteroffensives and counterattacks. And they're hoping to be prepared for that. Because ultimately, I think they are ambitiously now, looking at getting the Russians fully out of the region as potentially a war aim that is within reach for them. That remains to be seen, okay? The Ukrainians are doing well thus far, but they have been on the defensive. And so one of the things that we still need to figure out about this warfare, and this is really the first modern war in 30 years, the, the first war between two countries slugging it out, right? Even if it's it's between two countries that are sort of a first-tier military and a second-tier military, although whether Ukraine is actually second-tier and Russia is actually first-tier is, is difficult to determine, right? But the Gulf War was the last time we saw, you know, the, the, the Iraqis were in many ways one of the best second-tier militaries at the time. They'd just been through a, an eight-year-long conflict, the Iran-Iraq War, which they didn't, they didn't win, but they didn't exactly lose. They were battle-hardened, and the U.S. absolutely hammered them. Right? So the assumption then was, if the, if the Russians were a peer competitor of the U.S., and the Ukrainians were sort of more like the Iraqis in terms of, of being a second-tier military, um, and second-tier doesn't necessarily mean in quality, just it, it's, it's you know, a, smaller, a smaller power uh, that doesn't have as much economic heft as some of the, the great powers, right? But if that was the, the perception then, I think, was that you, Russia would just be able to roll over Ukraine. But what we're actually seeing now, is that these militaries are closer on par than we thought. And this is the first conflict of this type that we've seen really since the Gulf War, since the, the first Gulf War. Because Saddam in the second Gulf War wasn't really t attempting a mass conventional strategy. It was much more an insurgency, I think, from, from the go, right? Now, is the reality that the Ukrainians are just better at this? Or that we're seeing an element of defense dominance. I think it's way too early to tell. Defense dominance is the idea that it's easy to be the, easier to be the defender than the attacker. Probably be worthwhile to uh, to have a, a sort of roundtable discussion with our friend Dr. Hasty on, on that. You know, everybody's been pretty busy, so we haven't been able to get him in for, for the podcast, but we'll see if we can fix that in the next week or two. But we're going to learn a lot here in the next uh, couple of weeks. Unfortunately, the learning is going to be painful in terms of lives lost, casualties, particularly in terms of civilian casualties, because the Russians have not 
restrained themselves to any meaningful degree in that respect. Okay, so the Ukrainians may be a little bit optimistic in their ability to sort of actually push the Russians back. I think their, their first and foremost goal is, and probably ought to be, keeping the Russians from making any major advances in, in Donbass. If Putin can't actually gain substantial ground in that region in the next, essentially, three and a half weeks, then we are looking at a very, very uh, ticklish situation for Putin. It's hard to hold a Soviet-era Soviet victory parade in, in uh, Red Square in Moscow when you're currently losing a war. Okay? A war that you build as a war against Nazism. Okay? And of course, Putin could just continue to lie to his population and say that the war is, is going better than it is. But the sanctions are going to continue to bite. We're heading toward, I think, more creditors claiming the Russians of being, you know, accusing the Russians of being in default, more payments coming due, right? And so it's going to be pivotal. This next month or so, three and a half weeks, thereabouts, is going to tell us a lot. It's going to tell us a lot about exactly how this war is going to play out. Now, it doesn't mean the war will be over. It just means that we will kind of know where we are and what we're looking at in terms of this conflict by that time period. Okay. So if you've been stepping back from Ukraine, now is a good time to, to put your eyes sort of on the, on the conflict, because this is going to be the pivot point, right? So here, there are a couple of scenarios. One, and this is still very possible. Putin is able to just bring enough force to bear in a specific area where he is able to make substantial gains and force the Ukrainians to the table for a peace treaty that cedes most of the Donbass, or perhaps even all of the Donbass, to Russia. That's one possibility. I think probably for Putin, that's the best case scenario. And even in that best case scenario, where you've essentially, you know, turned Ukraine into Korea, where you have a divided Ukraine, it's going to be really hard for Putin to stop the actual legitimate Ukrainian state from funding an insurgency in that area and supporting an insurgency. And that insurgency is probably going to be backed by the West as well, right? It will, it will be a bloody, costly affair, and it will be a bleeding wound in the Russian Federation. Okay? That's one possibility. The other possibility is Putin is not able to make substantial gains. This is, a, I would say, scenarios one and two are probably the most likely, and this is the one that I, I sort of expect to happen just because the Ukrainians have been seeing this coming. It's been telegraphed. And, you know, I, I don't know that we... If the Russians are able to pull this off, it's not going to be because their quality got better. It's because they threw enough quantity at it. And so then it'll just be a question of who runs out of bullets first. Or, or you know, do the Russians have enough numbers to overwhelm the tactical advantages of the Ukrainians? And that's a possibility. But if they don't, then you've got a situation in which Putin is really stuck. Because there's no real way that he will be able to claim victory without the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Okay. Should that happen, then you have a situation in which the West and the rest of the world, right, not just the West, but the rest of the world, will need to very clearly communicate what will happen to Russia in terms of retaliation 
And I do say retaliation. I don't just mean deterrence because deterrence, you have to have a credible threat that actually scares the Russians, that actually scares Putin enough to think that what will happen to him if he uses a tactical nuclear weapon is worse than what will happen to him. Acknowledging that he lost a war to Ukraine, I think that there is a very, very strong case to be made that it is in the interest of global security for this taboo to be maintained. A taboo that since the Second World War, no one has used a nuclear weapon in conflict. Okay, And if the, if the Russians are going to break that taboo, especially against a non-nuclear power, let me tell you exactly what will happen if Russia uses a tactical nuclear weapon and the U.S. caves, and the U.S. does not impose significant pain on Russia. What will happen at that point is that any country that is potentially threatened by a nuclear power, and any country that is potentially threatened by a country that might go nuclear, is going to make getting nuclear weapons their top priority. You will see a nuclear Japan. You will see a nuclear South Korea. You will see a nuclear Saudi Arabia. You will see probably other countries in the Middle East go nuclear at the threat of the possibility of Iran getting a nuclear weapon. Okay, so if Russia gets away with using a tactical nuclear weapon, and if the Russian regime at that point does not suffer such significant pain that everybody else wakes up in a cold sweat thinking about it and thinking about what happened to them as a result, non-proliferation is dead. Okay, you just killed it. So we have to think about that aspect of it. And, you know, this is the, the there's a, a sort of prudential case that people are making that World War III would happen if the U.S. got involved and the U.S. needs to not get involved. And this is a completely unacceptable outcome. And so, the, so under no circumstances should the U.S. at any point go to war with Russia, right? Here's the problem with that, okay? There are other outcomes of this short of World War III that could make World War III not only more possible, but much more likely and much more devastating if it does happen, okay? If you do not punish the Russians sufficiently that they are hopefully deterred from using a tactical nuclear weapon, but at a minimum that significant pain is incurred by them from that, then you will see a nuclear Middle East. That's a real bad outcome. You're going to see a nuclear standoff in the Korean Peninsula. You're going to see a nuclear, I would say, Japan. And let's just be clear on this too. Taiwan is, is fully capable of, of producing or buying enough material to, to arm itself. And Taiwan is a democracy of 24 million people that is not necessarily at the point of saying we're going to declare independence from China. Right? They're trying to kind of have their cake and eat it too. I understand that why Taiwan would do that from that perspective. But here's the deal. They're also not going to let a nuclear-armed PRC dictate their future. The future of Taiwan, um, I think the Taiwanese are pretty committed to, should be dictated by the Taiwanese people. Right, Not by somebody waving the possibility of nuclear weapons at them. So everybody that is threatened by or possibly threatened by a nuclear power, all of a sudden will go to get nukes. From a proliferation perspective, if you think nuclear proliferation is a bad thing, that's a nightmare scenario. So we need to actually be very clearly signaling 
the levels of pain that Putin will incur if he uses a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine. That doesn't necessarily mean that the United States should get involved militarily, because I think that, you know, you can make the argument, the prudential argument that people are making, that that in and of itself would make a tactical use more likely. However, what these people are not taking seriously enough, in my view, and these are some very smart people, some of whom I respect a great deal, but what they're not taking seriously enough, in my view, is the possibility that if Putin looks like he's going to lose to Ukraine, you know, he's going to lose to the drug-addicted Nazis, he could still follow that same escalate to de-escalate. He could still use a tactical nuclear weapon if he looks like he's going to lose, period. So what are we prepared to do to deter a first use by Putin? And does a first use by Putin justify us then engaging in some more substantive offensive action against Putin and against his regime? I think those are probably questions that we need to be having, that we need to be asking, and we need to be very, very clear in terms of signaling in that respect. It's not just the United States. It needs to be the United States, Britain, France, and but frankly, China <laughs> would, would have a really compelling interest in uh, not having that nightmare scenario that I just mentioned, right? Several of those countries that could go nuclear are in East Asia. And if you're Japan and South Korea and, you know, Putin uses a tactical nuclear we weapon on fellow Slavs, and gets away, with, gets away with it in some sense, in any sense. If it in, in any sense seems like he might have gotten away with it. If you're trying to, you have to know that any country that has any kind of problem with you in that region is about to nuke up. So there's significant, significant regional instability in several regions of the world that would come about as a result of that. So we need to be prepared for that eventuality. In the meantime, those two scenarios in Donbass are the most likely. The third possibility is the Ukrainians actually successfully counterattack and push Putin back. And that is the one that is the most likely to actually trigger use of a tactical nuclear weapon, in my view. If Putin actually looks like he's not only losing the gains of this war, but if there's a possibility he could lose what he took in 2014. He could lose Donetsk and, and Luhansk. He could be forced into a peace that is worse than what he had at the outset of the war. That's a situation where you really need to start thinking about he's going to escalate to de-escalate. See, I think, I think the people who say, oh, well, he'll never actually nuke the Ukrainians if we don't get involved. I think those people are basing that assumption on the idea that the Ukrainians are not actually capable of militarily defeating the Russian military. That the Ukrainians are not actually capable of inflicting a defeat on Vladimir Putin. I'm not sure that that confidence is justified. And I, I'm certainly not confident that Putin, if it looks like he is going to be defeated by the Ukrainians, won't pull the nuclear card. Because it might be the only card he's got left. And because the lesson of Afghanistan, the lesson of the collapse of the Soviet Union after a military defeat, is going to be fresh in his mind as a KGB man who lived through it on the inside. So we need to be prepared for that eventuality and prepared to actually deter the use of a tactical nuclear weapon if it looks like Putin is going to lose the war. At the same time, we should be helping the Ukrainians to make sure that Putin loses the war. Right? Uh, so it's a two-pronged strategy. 
But that second prong is not one that I think we have heard clear words from the president, from other world leaders about what are the consequences that you're prepared to impose on Putin. By the way, I don't think sanctions is going to cut it. You know, I don't think blocking his imports of you know French truffles or Italian wine, right? That's not going to cut it when it comes to deterring a tactical nuclear weapon, right? You better be prepared for some very serious action that could potentially involve a multinational use of force. And frankly, conversations probably should be had with China about this. Not that's true. China is a is an adversary. But there are, there are areas in which adversaries will find it necessary to cooperate. And I think it is at least worth having a conversation with China about, hey, having Russia break the taboo on the use of nuclear weapons in conflict like this is not good for you. It's not great for us, but it's really bad for you. Because, because China has the most adversarial countries that are capable of ramping up a nuclear program quickly in its backyard. It's really bad for us because the last thing we want is a nuclear Middle East. I mean, that's just, that's uh, suboptimal from, from a number of, of, uh, of perspectives. All right, that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Keep your eye on what's happening in Donbass. Keep your eye on what's happening in Ukraine. This is a, a significant moment. It's going to tell us a lot about warfare. It's going to tell us a lot about this particular conflict. And there's some scenarios that could escalate very quickly in which we could see the need for the U.S. to be fast on its feet in deterring the tactical use of a nuclear weapon. Because if we don't, then the odds of a nightmare scenario increase significantly. And it might not be enough for the U.S. to just say, well, we're not going to get involved. And if we just don't get directly involved militarily, well, then I guess it probably won't happen and there, and there, won't, be a, uh, there won't be a nuclear escalation. I, we, we can't take that for granted at this point. And that is a, a deterrent threat that we need to be able to effectively maintain. So please remember to rate and subscribe at all of the sites mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. And for Blind Politics, continuing coverage, I on Ukraine. This is Dr. Nolte signing off. Mm-hmm.